we're going to talk this month about the Sermon on the Mount. I was really excited. You know, I, got, I was like, yeah, we're going to continue in uh, on the words, on the teachings, and on the sayings of Jesus Christ. Uh, and so for this month uh, and next month, for the next nine weeks, um, we're going to be going over the best sermon ever. The best sermon ever. And that is the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, John R.W. Stout, he said this of the Sermon on the Mount. He said it's probably the best-known part of the teaching of Jesus, though arguably it is the least understood and certainly it is the least obeyed. Ouch. Tonight I have entitled this message, uh, Kingdom Blessings. Kingdom Blessings. The Sermon on the Mount, it starts off with eight blessings that are known as the Beatitudes. In if you want, you can go to Matthew chapter 5 and just kind of put your finger there. We're not going to get there just yet, but that Greek word for blessings is makarios. And translated, what that word means, it means supremely blessed. It means fortunate, well-off, blessed, and happy. William Barclay's uh, Daily Study Bible describes makarios as a, as a joy which has its secret within itself. That joy which is serene and untouchable and self-contained. That joy which is completely independent of all chances and changes of life. Because how many know that life uh, is always changing? Seasons are always changing. Uh, there's different seasons that we go through in our lives. There's different circumstances that come in. And one minute we can be on the mountaintop and another minute we actually can be down in the valley. And you're saying that, that that blessing of that joy is that it's not changed by the circumstances of life. Uh, the Hebrew word for blessed is ashray, which also means happy or content or contented. In both cases, uh, the Greek word makarios and the Hebrew word ashray are not describing a blessing that we receive after we've endured, you know, as a reward or a prize after having endured trial or suffering. What those words convey, that the words blessed, uh, what it's trying to convey is that we are blessed while we are enduring. We are blessed while we're mourning. We are blessed while we're persecuted. We are blessed while we're going through storms. We are blessed while we're going through trials. We are blessed people tonight, church, uh, you know, so often we say, Lord, bless me. Lord, bless me. But we are already blessed. We're blessed because we know Jesus. We're blessed because uh, we are sons and daughters of the Most High God. We're blessed because God knows our name. We're blessed, uh, as the Bible says, are coming in and are going out. Uh, we're blessed. We are blessed regardless of any kind of circumstance or situation we might find ourselves in tonight. Uh, so that is that uh, those that don't know Jesus, though, those that don't have a personal relationship with God, uh, they can't understand the blessings that we have. They can't understand how we can be blessed uh, while we're going through some of the darkest times we might ever face. Uh, they can't understand how we can have, how we can be joyful when it seems that maybe all is lost, when it's all breaking loose around us. The Bible says that it's the joy, the joy that God gives us, the joy of the Lord that is our strength. It's our strength. Jesus in John 16, 22, he told his disciples this, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice 
And no one will take away your joy. No one will take away your joy. It means the devil can't rob your joy. The world can't rob your joy. A lost job can't rob your joy. A flat tire on the way to, to church can't take away your joy. It's the joy that God has given you. You might be going through some, time, some things right now. You might be experiencing some hurt or some suffering or some pain. It's all right. It's the joy of God that's going to get you through those things. And, and, and let me tell you why that joy is so important. To, let me tell you why that, that, that the enemy can't take that joy. It's because that joy stems from a relationship that you have with, with the Father. That joy comes from that peace that you have with God the Father. The joy of every child of God is privileged to experience. It has its foundations in the Beatitudes. We could think of the Beatitudes as the blessed attitudes. The ble Has anyone ever tell you you need to change your attitude? Okay, we know what that means, right? It means the way you're thinking is negative. And because you're being negative, uh, you're losing hope. You're becoming rude, irritable, getting hostile. You're starting to say and do things uh, that... Uh, are contagious. You've been in a room where someone just has a real bad attitude and, and uh, they're complaining or murmuring and next thing you find yourself with that same attitude. It spreads. The good thing though is that a good attitude is also contagious. A blessed attitude will also change uh, the atmosphere. It'll change the temperature of the room. Uh, I think we know some people that no it seems like no matter what they go through, they're blessed. No matter what trial they face, uh, they're still smiling. No matter what assault that comes against them, they still have the joy of the Lord. And that's contagious. And that's a blessing to us uh, because we say, man, I thought my trial was bad. I see what they're going through and they still have the victory. They're still fighting. They're still going forward. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. We're going to read the Beatitudes now. It says, And seeing the multitude, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, he, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's a lot of beatitudes, uh, and we're going to do our best to get through them all tonight. Just those in and of themselves, we could de dedicate a whole month's uh, sermon series. Uh, Jewish author Lois uh, Tevenberg said, in the beatitudes... Jesus highlights the heartfelt joy of God's favor in light of many circumstances that would certainly not expect to give a person uh, pleasure in our world. 
Who would want to be poor in spirit, or meek, or mourning, or even persecuted? But Jesus was teaching that it is precisely when we have the least amount of approval from the world that God pours out his greatest approval on us. When we are living life as it was meant to be lived, we know then we are pleasing our Father in heaven. And this will lead to a sense of contentment and joy like no other. What this lady was saying, what this Jewish lady was saying was that uh, it doesn't matter what the world thinks or says, but when your life about you, but what your life is pleasing God, when you're living a life that brings God joy, imagine that, that brings God blessings, then he pours his favor on you. He pours his approval on you. He pours his love on you. Think about the way we might have lived before we, know, we knew Jesus Christ, before we came to him uh, as, as a repentant sinner, before we asked him to be Lord of our lives. Uh, the lives we lived uh, that were sinful, maybe self-righteous, uh, they weren't pleasing to God. But we come to that place in our lives and we ask Jesus to be Lord and Savior of our lives and we begin to live lives that are pleasing to him. We begin to, we become the apple of his eye, the Bible says. That's a blessing right there. I used to see God as some distant being that was just taking note of every wrong thing I was saying and doing and at that right moment, pow, he was going to get me. That was the twisted view I, have of him, I had of him. Little did I know that he's a God of love, a God of mercy, a God of grace, a God of compassion, a God that sent his only son to die for me, for my sins, as well as each and every one of us here tonight. That should give us joy. The Bible is filled with what are called paradox or paradoxes. And a paradox, it seems like a contradiction or an inconsistency but when it's practiced, it's proven to be true. Some examples are you got to give to somebody new, receive, right? Die to, right? Lose to, right? The last shall be. And it doesn't make sense. How are the last going to be first? How is it that if I'm given away, I'm going to receive? These are paradoxes. And in the Beatitudes, uh, the, the Bible it, it teaches us these qualities that are pleasing to God and a blessing to us, uh, even though it might not necessarily be something we choose uh, or would even say, how, how can it be, be blessed to be mourning, to be meek? The poor in spirit, the mourning, the meekness, righteousness, mercy, purity, peacemaking, persecution, all of these Qualities, they, they go against the ideals of the mainstream. They go against the flow of today's worldview. And if we look at what's going on in this world today, we see that everything is upside down, right? And Jesus is teaching us as his disciples, as his followers, that we're not to follow the world, we're to go against the world. We're not to follow the, the, the current culture of the world, we're to be counter to that culture. In fact, what we need to be is about the kingdom culture. The kingdom culture. The book of 1 John, chapter 2. 
verses 15 through 17. It says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love, of the, fa- for the love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. And the world and its desires are passing away, but whoever does the will of God will abide forever. Jesus, he intentionally opens up his, his, uh, his sermon on the mount there with the Beatitudes. It wasn't random. He didn't just, it was intentional why he opened up with those Beatitudes. See, at this point, uh, multitudes that began to follow Jesus. His popularity was beginning to grow. Uh, he was healing the sick. He was uh, casting out devils. You know, he was bringing deliverance in the lives of people, and, and they were following him. There was a revival breaking loose uh, there within that area. They were hearing of this man that had the power to heal, to forgive sin, uh, to bring peace into the lives of those that were being afflicted. I pray for revival. I want to see revival in our church. I want to see revival in our city, in our state, in our nation. And that's my prayer for tonight, for this church, uh, for this congregation, for this fellowship, uh, is that God would allow us to see an end-time revival, that God would allow us to see these this sanctuary filled to capacity, that God would allow us to see people come into a place of repentance, uh, that God would allow us to see family members come in, that God would allow us to see hearts of politicians be changed. That's what revival does, is it convicts us of sin and it causes us to repent. It, it energizes our faith and it motivates the church of God to keep going forward, to keep pressing on, to keep us keeping on spreading the gospel. But revival, as blessed as we are to experience it, uh, it's not what keeps a believer. It helps, but it's not what keeps a believer. What, what keeps a believer are the spiritual disciplines that that believer will practice. The discipline of prayer, the discipline of of reading, studying, meditating on the Word of God, the discipline of mm, fasting, the discipline of church attendance. It's those disciplines that keep a believer. It's those disciplines that keep someone continually serving God. The key to us living fulfilled lives, it ultimately comes down to our total commitment and our dependence on Jesus. We need to be kingdom-minded. Matthew 6, it says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given unto you. And so what does it mean to be kingdom-minded? It means that we see things from God's point of view, from a biblical point of view. We no longer want to rebel against the God or his word, his commandments, but, but actually now we're trying to live the word of God. We're putting it into practice. We don't want to just be hearers, but we want to be doers of the word of God. And when it comes to the word of God and when it comes to the commands of God, uh, somebody said this, you cannot understand God's commands without a relationship of love with him. Because otherwise it's just a bunch of rules. But when you know God 
And when you have an intimate relationship with God, when you begin to read his word and read his statutes and read his commands, they begin to make sense because you have a relationship with him. Parents, you know your children, right? You know why they do that. We wonder why they do the things that they do, but we know who our children are. Married couples, you know your spouse. You know why they do what they do. It's because there's that relationship there. There's that bond there. And that's what needs to take place in the life of a believer. They have to have that relationship with God. This is more than just a religious experience. Uh, This is a genuine relationship that we have with him. In the world, we can't expect the world to know and understand uh, God's word. They can't, uh, they don't know why we would follow God why we choose to love God, why we choose to lay down our lives for God. It can't grasp the wisdom uh, uh, and the life that comes through the word of God. It doesn't make sense to them. Beatitudes don't make sense to them, but to you and I, as we begin to apply that word of God to our lives, it begins to make a lot of sense. We begin to see in our eyes, uh, we are open, we have that revelation. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Being poor in spirit, what it means is that, is that having that understanding that apart from Jesus Christ, we are spiritually bankrupt. The Bible says that our righteousness in and of our own selves is like filthy rags in the sight of God. It's dirty. But it's because of Jesus Christ, it's the righteousness of Jesus that we can be called righteous. And so what that means is that no matter what you might have done in your past, no matter which mistake or what sin you might have been involved in, uh, once you come to Jesus, it's under the blood. You're washed and cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, the Bible says even though your sins made you as red uh, and as stained as scarlet, uh, it's the blood of Jesus uh, that makes us whole, that washes us whiter than snow. That's good news tonight, man. The poor in spirit means being humble in spirit. And when we live humbly before God, we live knowing that we need God's grace. We need his provision. When we are humbly walking with him and before him, we're relying on him to meet our every need, to fill us with his love. And and as we walk with him, we're experiencing the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, in the earlier chapter, Matthew 4, 17, he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was telling the people that the the kingdom of heaven is within your reach, is within your grasp. Turn away. Turn away, man. Stop trying to do it on your own and start turning to Jesus. Start relying on Jesus. Uh, You're poor in spirit, which means that you have to be totally dependent on Jesus and what he did for you. Blessed are those that mourn. When we mourn, when we hurt, when we grieve, as as believers, we can also testify to how the Holy Spirit has comforted us. That how he's seen us through our times of distress, that how he's been that incredible grace and comfort uh, in our lives uh, when nothing else could, could comfort us, when nothing else could give us peace, when nothing else could take that pain away, It was the Spirit of God. It was Jesus uh, there with us. 
Suffering, it teaches us some things. Our suffering in Christ is never in vain. When we go through it, when we suffer, when we hurt, uh, you know what that does is it teaches us how to dive deeper into our relationship with God. It teaches us to really press in and get a hold of God. It teaches us to not get up, just like Jacob said, I'm not leaving God until you bless me. I'm not leaving until you bless me, God. That's what mourning does to a believer. It also teaches us how to have compassion for others and how to comfort others when they're mourning, when they're going through trial. The meek are promised to inherit the earth. Now, the world would equate meekness with weakness, and that's not so, okay? What meekness can be defined is as, as power under control or restraint, and what it does is it gives a picture of a stallion, how strong is a stallion, that it restrains its power and control to the bit that they put in its mouth. The meekest, the humblest, the most gentlest of all to ever walk this earth was the Lord Jesus himself. And I tell you what, he was not weak. Jesus was not weak. Jesus uh, stood in front of the religious system that was corrupted at the time, the Pharisees, and he confronted them. Jesus, when he saw that his, his, his father's house, the temple of God, became a swap meet, he began to overturn tables. The Bible says that he braided a whip from cords, walking around, you just get that picture of him walking around, making a whip, uh, and he began to overturn those money tables. That's not a weak man. He, he cast out demons. That's not a weak individual. He endured the cross and everything that came with that, with that cross. That's not a weak individual. I was talking to Pastor Bernie. Pastor Bernie says, through the whole time, from the kiss at the, at the garden to his last breath on that cross, Jesus was never a victim. He was always in control of what was going on. See, weakness implies that you don't have control, that you don't have power. You're powerless, and you can't do anything about it. And Jesus said, he said, Peter, put your sword away, because this isn't the way. If I wanted to, I could call legions of angels. That's not a man who's weak. That's a man who has power under control for our benefit, for our sake. Uh, he wasn't a, a victim when the Pharisees came and, 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 and accused him. Falsely, he wasn't a victim when the mob came to arrest him. He wasn't a victim when the Romans were whipping and beating him. He was always in control. Meekness is not weakness. The paradox of meekness is that meekness is strength. The world will test your strength as a believer. And that's why they'll mock, and that's why they'll ridicule, and that's why they'll, they'll see just how far they can get to get a rise out of you. It's not a quality that the world appreciates, meekness. They see it as weak. They'll climb over one another for success and for power, but Jesus said it's the meek that are going to lead. It's the meek that are going to inherit the earth. The hungry and the thirsty for righteousness, the merciful and the pure heart, pure in heart, they all have this in common. 
is that they are all spiritually minded and they desire nothing more than to have that intimate relationship with the Lord. See, God help us that we don't get to a place in our lives where we have uh, enough God, right? What do I mean by that? Well, I'm not drinking and I'm not doing drugs. That's enough, God. I'm not cheating, I'm not lying, I'm not stealing. That's enough, God. I have a steady job and I even tithe. That's enough, God. I'm married. That's enough, God. That's what I mean. God help us that we don't ever get to that place where we become satisfied or content, but we want more of God, that we desire more of him, more of his love, more of his power, more of his spirit, more of a relationship with Jesus. And the closer we get to Jesus, the more we want to be like him. We're to be Christ-like. That's what a disciple is, is a follower of Jesus, someone who wants to be Christ-like. So if we want to be Christ-like, it means we've got to purify our hearts. Blessed are the pure in heart, right? To have a pure heart means that you have an undivided loyalty to God. That you're loving him above everything, above all else. And this kind of love comes from a clean heart that has been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. When we have this kind of love for God, it will overflow into every area of our lives, including our relationships with others. When we love God, we're able to love others. The pure in heart, they want to see God. And they want to see as God sees. They want to see from, the perspe- from that biblical perspective, that God's point of view. The pure in heart, you know what they, they do? They, is they see the need. They see the lost. They see those that are hurting. They see those that are broken. And they extend the mercy of God to them. They extend them. They show them the way to God's mercy. The same way that they were shown the mercy of God as they extend that mercy of God to those that are hurting, that are lost. They're peacemakers is what they are. The Bible says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. See, it was Jesus that made peace between God and us, between God and mankind. The Bible says that uh, his name is the Prince of Peace. He mentors us in peace. He gives us that peace, the Bible says, that is beyond all comprehension, above all understanding. Uh, He gives us that peace that the world can't take away, the Bible says. And he calls us to be peacemakers. And a peacemaker is different from a peacekeeper, okay? A peacekeeper will overlook transgression, make excuses to avoid conflict. I said, man, I hate conflict, man. (laughs) But a peacemaker will deal with conflict by bringing the Holy Spirit into that conflict. See, a peacemaker won't add fuel to the fire. A peacemaker won't begin to stir up strife, uh, won't get get involved in the gossip, and won't get involved in the backbiting, and won't get involved in all the shenanigans that go on with that. They're not going to bring more division, but a peacemaker wants to bring unity, wants to bring healing, wants to bring restoration. James 1, 19 and 20, it says, Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Because human anger 
does not produce the righteousness that God desires. See, ultimately, peacemakers, uh, or ultimately the peacemakers God wants us to be is those who would teach others that they too can have the peace of God and peace with God. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What does that mean? Is he called us to be peacemakers? Yes. Uh, God has placed a responsibility upon the child of God, upon the believer. And that is to be that light, to be that example, and to help others come to that place in their lives, man, where they can find the peace of God. Sin, the world, it doesn't bring peace. It brings torment. It brings destruction. It brings chaos. And we have individuals that are, man, they're, they're just, they're dying to know, how do you have that peace? How is it that you can keep going through whatever it is that you're going through, man? I had a gentleman walk into my office yesterday, and he was telling me about everything that had been going on in his life, uh, telling me about, uh, you know, his mother is sick and his funerals that he's been going to. And he goes, man, he goes, I can't wait for this year to be over. It's just been horrible. It's a man that didn't have peace. He came, I told him I'd be praying for him, and I did. I prayed for him. And he came back into my office today because um, we had a chat about some other things. And I says, hey, man, I just want to let you know I'm praying for you. I'll pray for you right now, but I'm praying for you. I'm praying for your mom. He goes, man, I appreciate that so much, man. Appreciate that so much. And just the simple gesture of praying with somebody and praying for somebody, you could see there was that sense of relief. I'm not doing this by myself. I'm not in this by myself. At least there's somebody that's praying for me. That's what a peacemaker does. How can I be used of you, God? to help others know you. And then lastly, as our worship team comes up, it says, blessed, Jesus ends the, the Beatitudes with, ble- with the blessings that come through persecution. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he keeps going. Like the other Beatitudes were just two lines, and then that was it, right? When it comes to persecution, he says, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He says, You're blessed while you're being persecuted. You're blessed. See, Jesus offers no illusion concerning the Christian life. Uh, he doesn't sugarcoat it. Uh, he, he tells it as it is, right? The moment that we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we step onto a battlefield. We've abandoned the kingdom of darkness, and now we serve uh, God, and we're in the kingdom of heaven. And, and so there's a war declared on us as believers. There's, that spiritual battle that we've now entered into. And it seems like we can actually see what's going on right now if, 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 in terms of where we're at as, 
as a society. It's like a lawless spirit has been unleashed, right? And this lawless spirit, uh, it calls evil good and good evil. It's twisted, it's perverse, it's mean, and it wishes to intimidate and keep uh, silent uh, those who would say, no, evil is evil. And the only thing good is what comes from God. It would want to try to intimidate and keep believers or individuals from wanting to speak up and say, that's not right. It's not that we're not tolerant, it's just that this is wrong. And it's dangerous and it's unhealthy. In these days, see, God is looking for a church that will stand for him. God is looking for believers that would be unashamed of him. He's looking for people that will speak the truth, uh, even if it means that they are threatened with the loss of a job or maybe threatened uh, with a fine, prison, whatever. He says, when you're persecuted, you're blessed. You're blessed uh, when they're mocking you. You're blessed uh, when they're coming against you. You're blessed uh, when they're saying these things because you're doing it for me. You're, you're, you're taking it for me, for my sake. And when you're going through it, uh, when they're coming against you because of me, I'm right there with you. I'm not leaving you. I'm not forsaking you. You're not doing it by yourself. You're not doing it on your own. I'm giving you my Holy Spirit who's going to comfort you, who's going to see you through. And no matter what the outcome, you're still my child. No matter what the outcome, I still got you. No matter what they do to you, you're mine. And can nobody take you away from me? That's the blessing of being persecuted for Christ's sake. See, we're looking forward to the return of Jesus, amen? I am. And sometimes I, my wife and I were like, oh, Lord, come quickly. <laughs> oh, God, take us now. Why are you waiting? But that's, that's just the flesh talking. It really is. Because we have family that aren't saved. We have neighbors that aren't saved. And as much as we want to be with God in heaven and see all of this be done with. We got to be like Abraham. God, if there's just one righteous person, will you spare, will you spare them? Because God's bringing judgment. God's going to bring judgment because we can't sin and we can't deny the word of God and there not be any repercussions. There will be a judgment. But God is raising up uh, Abrahams that'll say, God, I'm going to stand in the gap for my loved one. I'm going to stand in the gap for my neighbor. I'm going to stand in the gap for my coworker. Before you bring the judgment, God, would you please have mercy on this individual? Would you please open their eyes that they could see your goodness, your love? That's why he keeps telling us to preach the gospel. It's the gospel that changes lives. It's the gospel when it's, when it's preached. Uh, people hear it. Some people, when they hear it, they, they, with the, they respond to it. They receive it. They're converted. Their lives are changed. Uh, they're transformed. Uh, they're no longer the person they used to be. They, they've got that. There's something on the inside now. They're a new person, a new creation. 
And there's other people that'll hear the gospel, the same message, and they'll hate it. And they'll mock it. And they'll, want, they'll manifest against it. And they'll want nothing to do with that gospel. And they'll begin to oppose it. Uh, they'll begin to stand against that gospel. It's because the gospel of Jesus Christ, it brings offense. It offends, believe it or not. It offends the self-righteous and it offends uh, uh, the rebellious. It offends, it offends the religious. It offends the secular. It offends because it tells us that we can't be comfortable and content in our sin. It brings us to a place of decision. We can, we can say we're spiritual and people be like, yeah, good, you're spiritual. It's good. Positive vibes, right? We can say we're religious. We can say we believe in God. We can say we believe in the universe. We can say all of these things and people would be like, that's so right on. But the minute you say, I believe in Jesus Christ and I confess him as my Lord and Savior, all of a sudden you've drawn a line in the sand. And all of a sudden, you can hear that record skip and that needle scratch that record and it's silence because now what you've done is you're saying, no, I don't just believe these things. I'm a follower of Jesus. And it's the name of Jesus that often brings offense because it's the name of Jesus that brings people to a place in their lives where they have to make a decision to either receive him or reject him. And so when you are saying, I'm a Christian, born again, uh, the enemy comes against that. The enemy will come against you. Someone said the gospel is offensive, but you don't have to be. 2 Timothy 3.12, it says, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Persecution is nothing new to the church. Since its birth, it's been persecuted. And as it's persecuted, it grows. For centuries, people have been persecuted for their faith. It's going to be no different in this generation. I, I was reading, and currently there are 360 million Christians that live in nations with high levels of persecution or discrimination. These are your brothers and sisters, okay? In Nigeria and sub-Saharan Africa has, in this year, 2023, become the epicenter of a jihadist violent movement against Christians. More than 5,600 Christians were killed for their faith just last year. More than 2,100 churches were attacked or closed. And more than 124,000 Christians were forcibly displaced from their homes because of their faith in Jesus. The Center for Religious Liberty at the Family Research Council, they published an article last month, last month, okay, reporting that the increasing rate of church vandalism in the U.S. during recent years has, has been growing. In an update published uh, this month, it says the report noted that in 2023 is already on track to log the highest number of church vandalism incidents within six years, within the past six years. This is in the United States, okay? It says, according to the report, 69 acts of hostility against churches in 29 states, there's 50 states, that's more than half 
of the country, more than half of the states in this country have already had, um, have experienced something. Uh, 53 acts of vandalism, 10 arson attacks or attempts, three gun-related incidents, three bomb threats, and two incidents uh, such as assaults. And what's that saying is that it's knocking on the church's door. It's knocking on the church's door. We are blessed in the United States because we can freely worship. We can freely confess Jesus. And we'll be persecuted, but to the extent of what some of our brothers and sisters are going through, we, we're, not at, we're not at that level, thank God. It's mainly because I believe this nation was at one point uh, founded on Christian Judeo beliefs. But as we reject, not we meaning the church, but as a nation, as, as we as a nation be, continue to reject Jesus, continue to re reject the things of God, well, we're opening up that door. We're opening up that door for judgment. Like what Sister Joy said, she said, Brother Manny, when I pray, I pray that on the day of testing, my faith fails me not. And that's my prayer. Because God has done so much in my life and so much in each and every one of your lives that we got to be committed to just be sold out for Christ, honestly. We used to say New Harvest strictly for the hardcore, right? I, I had the t-shirt, it said that. I wish I still had it. And I still believe that. This is a place where we're hardcore for Jesus, where we love God, we know our God, we know whom we serve, we know our Savior, we know in whom we believe. And whatever comes against us, we know that God's with us. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. That's the blessing and that's the promise that he's given us. He said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 24, and I'll end with this, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple to be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they cast those of his household? Will they call those of his household? He says, therefore, do not fear them. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. He says, whatever I tell you in the dark, speak it in the light. And whatever you hear in the ear, preach it on the housetops. And again, he says, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And yet not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. The very hairs on your head are all numbered, he says. And then for the third time, he says, do not fear, therefore, because you are more, value, more valuable than many sparrows. And so church, whatever the enemy would try to bring upon us as people, God's people, we lean on that scripture. Greater is he that is within us than he that's within this world. No devil in hell can walk over the Jesus in each and every one of us. We've been called to be the head and not the tail. 
We fight the good fight, but we don't fight from a place of defeat. We fight from a place of victory. God has already won the battle. The battle is God's. All our job is to be faithful soldiers, uh, faithful men and women of God. And when that time comes uh, that we're gone from this world, uh, well done, good and faithful servant. Uh, enter into the joy of the Lord. Can we give God praise tonight? Uh, can we just tell him how blessed we are to know him? Can we just love him this evening? Can we just spend some time right now uh, speaking to our Father? Lord, we love you. God, we praise you. We thank you, God. Uh, Lord, you've called us blessed, Lord. Uh, God, we love you tonight in this place. Uh, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed tonight, uh, 